Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Do you know who I adore? Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. It's like sunshine for the belly. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm your host, Sarah Flora, and today we are talking about yeast. As the backbone of beer, yeast plays a pivotal role in everything that goes in your glass. Some say that 70% of the flavor of your beer is actually from the yeast, so move over hops. We're going to talk about the underappreciated workhorse of beer today. We'll hear from yeast expert Eric Fowler, education and engagement manager for White Labs Yeast in just a bit, but first... Yeast is around us everywhere we go. It lives on the fruit we eat, in the air we breathe, and even on our own skin. When beer was invented, or discovered really, we had no idea what was creating alcohol in this like grain soup that we were drinking. But once we discovered that it was actually yeast that was doing all of the heavy lifting, the possibilities seemed endless. There have been some insane beers brewed with yeast from unexpected places, and that's what we're gonna get into today. So we've all seen the memes about hipsters being super into craft beer, and they always have beards when you see these like memes or whatever. Well, Rogue Ales actually kind of took the whole moniker of a beard being associated with craft beer to a new level. Rogue Ales was looking for a yeast strain that would exemplify the terroir of Newport, Oregon, where they're based. Um, if you're into wine at all, you know the terroir is basically the taste you get from the earth in a specific place, also the air and whatever. It's definitely used more as a wine term than a beer term, but the more we get into craft and regional beers, the more terroir really makes an appearance in the beers we're drinking. So they didn't have any luck with uh, local hops or barley or even the air around them. They tried to harvest yeast from all of these places and no luck. So they had a really unique idea to take a sample from their brewmaster, John Mayer's beard, that hadn't been cut since 1978. What started out as a joke about Mayer's face being an optimal place to grow yeast got him thinking that there could be some good stuff hidden in his beard. The beard yeast is actually what gives their new crustacean ale its pineapple-y flavor. So you can really harvest yeast from anywhere. I've actually thought about doing a beer myself, uh, harvesting yeast from myself, like through my skin, or I guess I could do my hair as well, but that's going to take a lot of experimentation that I haven't quite gotten to yet. Speaking of taking yeast from very personal items, another one of my favorite stories is beer brewed with yeast from Roald Dahl's writing chair. Roald Dahl is known for writing some of our childhood favorites, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, 
Matilda and the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, personally, I am a huge fan of James and the Giant Peach. That was always my favorite as a kid. He wrote all of these stories from a single chair in his home in Buckinghamshire, England. And there's a museum dedicated to him that has his chair and other belongings. So 40 Foot Brewery took a sample of the writing chair and grew a yeast from it. They created Mr. Twit's Odious Ale to celebrate Roald Dahl. So if you get your hands on one of these beers, you can uh, pretty much guarantee your creative juices are gonna get flowing, drinking in such great history. Stepping back in time a little further, there has actually been beer brewed with yeast that is 45 million years old. So this doesn't seem possible. In the 90s, Dr. Raul Kanu extracted a piece of amber that had a bee encased in it. So in the 90s, Dr. Raul Kanu extracted a piece of amber that had a bee in it. This will tie into our next story, actually. So they extracted over 2,000 microorganisms from this bee that has been sitting in this fossilized tree sap for millennia. This was such a wild discovery that even the scientific community didn't want to believe that you could do this. In these microorganisms, there was a few yeast strains that were similar to ale yeast. This was obviously inspiring to Dr. Canu and his partner, Chip Lambert, because they later found fossil fuels brewing. So you can find their beers still. I think this is probably one of the most unique yeasts in the world, solely because you have these two microbiologists who are basically archeologists as well, coming together to make beer with yeast that no one else has access to. It's discovered it. And to say that you've discovered yeast is something that few people can put their name to. There are programs to develop new yeast, but to find one in the wild is much more rare, especially one that is so old. So we're all familiar with lager and ale yeast. Like those are the two workhorses of every brewery. You make lagers or you make ales, but there are other species of yeast out there. I'm thinking Brettanomyces and others. So wild yeasts are all around us and they usually give us pretty wild flavors. The problem with harvesting wild yeast is getting something mild enough that doesn't create a crazy beer that like, you know, smells like vomit or other things and is safe. Rob Dunn and his team at North Carolina State University have actually found one of these rare yeasts in the wild. They found that this yeast that they discovered actually gives great flavor and it comes from bees and wasps. Told you it would come back. Dunn has a theory that some of the first beer was actually made by insects falling into these pits of wet grain and then the yeast on them fermenting and making beer. He says that yeast is the most successful organism in the world. And personally, I know that this is probably true just given the fact that getting a wild yeast infection out of a vessel is extremely difficult and takes a lot of bleach. So how they harvested this yeast was Anne Madden, who is Dunn's microbrangler, which is a fantastic title if I have ever heard one, 
caught wild bees and wasps and then transferred all the microbes on their body into a petri dish and somehow they only ended up with two dead bugs in the entire process. I'm a huge bee lover, so I really appreciate this. Save our bees. They are important for everything we do in brewing. If you want to have crops of hops or barley, you need bees. So once they had all these microorganisms in their petri dish, they let them grow and separated out the yeast from other bacteria or fungus. And they basically just did a sniff test. If you have ever harvested your own yeast, you know that that's how you actually tell which yeasts are possibly viable because the smell in your Petri dish will actually pretty much be the smell that your beer will have in the end. So if it's vile, you don't want to use that yeast. But if it's like slightly tart and sweet or fruity, it might be a viable candidate for making a beer. They also went through a rigorous process to make sure that this beer wouldn't make anyone sick. This is a lot more work than like what us homebrewers do if we're harvesting wild yeast from the surroundings. And we probably should do it, but I think uh, homebrewers are a little bit uh, more adventurous than uh, scientists would be in the, the possibly poisoning yourself <laughs> arena. So once the yeast passed all the safety and smell tests, they took it to the brew house where John Shepard found a strain from a wasp that not only produced ethanol, but it also created an acid, so they made a sour beer from it. The yeast also had hints of honey, even though there was no honey added, which is kind of funny to think. It's like, is it the yeast that actually makes the taste of honey from the bees, or is it just the honey itself that makes the taste? What's really cool about this yeast they found is that they can make a fully soured beer in a week rather than the months it would take if you're using like a lactic or a bread and yeast or something. I hope these wild stories of where yeast can come from is inspiring everyone to go harvest their own yeast and seek out some of these beers that are most of them are pretty commercially available if you're in the right area. I've tried to get my hands on some of them and they're harder. But keep an eye out for beers that use fun yeast. Uh, there's a bunch of sour beers and uh, like farmhouse ales that are using more locally sourced yeast. I know Jester King has harvested yeast from Salvia in Texas and have a beer that uses that and I'm hoping to try it here soon. But with all that, let's get into my interview with Eric Fowler, the Education and Engagement Manager for White Labs Yeast, and pick his brain about what they're doing in the future and some crazy places they have found yeast. My guest today is Eric Fowler, the Education and Engagement Manager for White Labs Yeast. White Labs Yeast was inspired by a group of homebrewers looking for high quality yeast. From there, it grew into a team of biochemists finding ways to advance the brewing process. Last year, I was able to get a tour of the facility and let's just say fermentation is magic. I completely nerded out. Thanks so much for joining me, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm stoked we get to do this. Um, anytime we can kind of spread the gospel of one of the least sexy ingredients. <laughs> Um, you know, we're, we're always happy to, cause there's a, some awesome stories, which, you know, hopefully we'll get to. Yeah. I mean, yeast, I feel like is the underappreciated workhorse of the brewery. It's like what 70% of flavor comes from yeast. 
So yeah, over 500 flavor and aroma compounds come from yeast or, or some derivative and effect on that. So it's, yeah. it's crazy how often it's underlooked. And I think it tends to be underlooked, to be honest, because it, it seems complicated. It seems daunting, right? You know, hops and malt, it's very, we're, we can grasp on to the, the concepts of how they're adding flavor, how they're grown, how they're produced, uh, because they're similar to other agriculture ingredients we work with in our kitchen every day. Um, whereas we work with yeast in our kitchen, but it just seems, uh, it reminds a lot of people of their middle school, you know, biology class. Yeah, it's, it's definitely different uh, holding hops or grain in your hand versus <laughs> having this slurry that to really see what's going on, you have to have a microscope to look at. Yeah, totally. But, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, people are quick to point the finger at something going wrong because of the yeast. But, you know, when it comes to fermentation, you know, the activity of that yeast is something that's pretty tangible, right? An, an airlock bubbling or Krausen is one of our favorite things because you spend six hours, eight hours that day brewing to waking up the next morning and, and smelling that and, you know, seeing that activity is pretty exciting and tangible. Yeah, I love it. I had a Play-Doh airlock for a while and the seeing the bubbles per minute when I was at work on my phone, <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's happening. I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's next level <laughs> nerdum right there. That's awesome. It's really what makes the magic happen. I always say fermentation is like magic. And something one thing to do with that is that you can't really see the yeasts that are actually doing all the work. What is the process of developing a yeast strain? I know White Labs has many at this point and wondering how you get all of these different yeast strains. We have hundreds and hundreds of strains banked, um, sourced from different periods, different you know breweries, different places on earth, different major brewing regions. And it can be daunting when you have accumulated so many strains over the 25 years that we've been around and over the, you know, eight, 9,000 years people have been brewing. But you know, being able to determine what strains we're most excited about and what's most relevant to people and communicating that, you know, there's, we could be really excited about a strain, but if we don't tell that story the right way or relate it to something that's current, it, it can kind of go unnoticed, even though it's a really cool strain because there's so many available and there's been so many that have been domesticated when it comes to actually uh, like developing a yeast. So you know, 99.9% .9 of brewers yeast strains on the market are non-GMO. So they're not genetically modified. And every strain in our bank is non-GMO. Um, so it's taken about 500 years for brewers to actually domesticate these strains and develop them. And they've developed them by passing it from brewer to brewer to brewer. Um, or, you know, we we're talking about food, brewer to baker and, and vice versa. And that's kind of a cool relationship uh, because they're both using the same species of yeast or Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is ale yeast, right? And over that time, that yeast has kind of been selected and grown accustomed to the environment in which we use it in, which yeast don't really want to ferment and create ethanol, right? That's a, a that toxifies the environment that they're in. But what that does is allows them um, to a little bit more longevity and help kill any competition, anything else that might be in that environment too. So what we've done is we've banked these strains that have been naturally domesticated or um, some fun strains that might be found wild on fruit. Uh, 
you know, just naturally occurring in the environment too. And we've banked those. So then our process is determining what's relevant, what people actually want. Um, does it work for a business? Does it actually grow? Because there's some really cool strains that might not really grow that well or consistently, and it might produce an awesome beer, but you know, a lot of what people are looking for when they come to a lab to buy yeast is consistency. It doesn't mean that some of that natural uh, microflora that's found in spontaneous sour beers are any less important, but those are a little bit, can be a little bit more difficult to control. So finding something that's consistent that we can propagate, grow, and continue to put out there and has some longevity to it as most, and then most importantly, create something that tastes good. It's funny to me that uh, yeast was technically like the most recently discovered ingredient in beer. And before they were just using the same stick to stir the, the wort and it just happened. It's great that we now have more control over it, but it's also kind of interesting to think what before we discovered it, what those beers kind of tasted like, because, you know, it presumably everyone's beer tasted slightly different because the yeast was all slightly different. Yeah. And, you know, looking back on beer style history and brewing history, I think it's easy to start looking at it through a romantic lens and getting really excited about it. Man, that beer back, you know, in the 1700s when IPAs were first becoming popular must've tasted awesome. There's a good chance that it didn't taste very good. And a big reason, you know, there's probably multiple reasons that have to do with uh, processing and ingredients and, and brewing techniques, but a big reason is they didn't understand microbiology. They probably weren't very clean and there were probably a lot of organisms living in those beers, which, you know, we've kind of come to find out to be true now. Um, so again, it's, it's not that one's worse than the other, but as consumers, as brewers, we look for consistency a lot of the time and controlling yeast is just one of those elements of controlling that consistency. Speaking of consistency, I know that White Labs has a very intuitive packaging system that helps out with your consistency and sterility. Um, will you tell us about what it is and how it works? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, I believe it was within the last a little over five years ago, um, we've got an internal conference um, that was called um, the world domination conference is kind of tongue in cheek and every year different employees from um, different parts of the company would pitch ideas and it could be on sustainability it could be on new products it could just be on internal culture building well years beyond um, this product and this process even being developed uh, trolls prawl who um, leads our our copenhagen facility and is head of our innovation uh, came up with the idea on how can we cut down on transfers? And the result was what we now call our flex cell process. So a lot of times when you propagate yeast, there's a lot of transfers involved, uh, meaning you have to take that yeast from one vessel that you're growing it in, put it somewhere else to package it. But what the flex cell process does is actually takes the large uh, film that it's in it propagates in there. So you're growing yeast in this film and then subdivide it and package in a subsection of that film. So what you see today with pure pitch, which is the finished product is actually one small subsect 
of that larger film. So that mitigated a lot of transfers, which is possible exposure, uh, which could, if you introduce any oxygen, can actually stress the yeast and deplete some of the glycogen reserves within the cell, uh, added risk of contamination. Um, and then more importantly, those, maybe not more importantly, but uh, consequently, those transfers require more cleaning. So you're using more chemicals in that process too. So it, it really made a lot of sense um, from pushing the product to a higher quality, um, but it is you know, a unique process to us. We do have a patent on this process. Um, so it took a long time to um, really develop and implement it. And we've got a lot of awesome things coming down the pipeline too. So be on the lookout in the next year or two for cool additions. Love it. Um, so, White Labs has done collaborations in the past. Uh, one that I'm extremely interested in is the collaboration they did with McKellar on the Rec Ale. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that one. The Rec Ale is, you know, one of a number of interesting projects that we've worked on. Uh, you know, when we started opening our, we've got a, a production facility and brew pub in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm, I'm based here in San Diego. And, you know, as we were building that facility and it was just a shell, you know, we sent a group out there and we were looking at the floor plan. We went out to dinner and went to a, a local bar and uh, totally unrelated. I don't know how the topic started, but somebody started talking about this really cool beer that they heard of that was the yeast was actually um, sourced from the brewer's beard and it was it was really funny to see the the door person at this bar tell us all about this not knowing uh, the group that he was telling it to uh, and what it was that beer was actually called beard beer uh, from rogue brewing up in the pacific northwest and for that project you know we sent a team up there and they tried to find yeast all over the brew house. And it's likely that, that the yeast that they're going to find is the yeast used in that brewery because, you know, they're dealing with large quantities of it. But as a joke, they swabbed the brewer's beard and inflated it, ended up finding some yeast on it that was alcohol tolerant so they could brew a beer with it. And they ended up brewing a beer. With the, the, the Neva, so that was a ship um, that... In, in the mid to late 1800s uh, actually crashed into another ship and sunk. It was carrying a lot of beer though. And when that sunk, a lot of the beer was preserved. So what we saw is, you know, very cold temperatures at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, it's not really being disturbed because there's not a whole lot of move movement down there and there's zero light. So it was a, a pretty ideal location to store beer, which is, uh, not really what most people would think of when they think of a ship crashing, but there was a, a team of divers um, and teaming up with McKellar, uh, who's got a facility um, near us in Europe and in, in Copenhagen. And we were able to get involved and actually take some of those bottles and find living yeast that we could then propagate. And they brewed a beer with it, which is pretty cool. So there's, there's a long string of stories like that. I mean, finding yeast at the bottom of the ocean is probably one of the coolest, but, you know, yeast is a pretty hardy organism. So it's not surprising uh, or not unheard of that it's survived in those conditions for over a hundred years. Yeah. When I was doing my research for this episode, um, one of the people I, uh, 
attributed a quote to that I'm not going to remember their name right now, but uh, he said that yeast is the uh, the most resilient organism on earth. It's impossible to get rid of somehow. <laughs> it's just taken over everything, which I mean, it helps us out for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it helps preserve things and, and consumables that we weren't able to preserve for a long time. So, you know, not just brewing beer, but, you know, a lot of other fermented products. And you look at most cultures have some aspect of fermentation, uh, you know, in their, their culinary culture. And that's because, you know, resources are finite. And if you can make something last a little bit longer and more importantly, help pre-digest it and make it healthier for you. I'm not, I'm not advocating beer is healthy, but <laughs> I mean, at one point when the water wasn't good. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Does White Labs have any new strains of yeast they're coming out with or anything that we should be getting excited about that you can tell us? Yeah, as I said, you know, that the R&D process of developing a new strain is uh, pretty intensive. Uh, sometimes it can be quick if we're familiar with that strain or maybe there's um, a brewer or two that have used it quite a bit that, you know, now let us release it into a, a a wider audience. Uh, but sometimes it's, you know, a lot of R&D trials that take months and sometimes years. The most recent strain that we've released to our vault, which is kind of a, a pre-order program, um, which allows a lot of these cool strains that uh, might be a little bit more unique and allows brewers to go in there and uh, show interest in them, was our WLP631 Appalachian Tart. And what this was is, you know, we... Um, one of our sales managers, you know, we all still homebrew a lot. Um, I tend to brew more tried and true recipes and, you know, really stick to what I know because the days of spending a lot of time on something that doesn't turn out, I've got a family and, you know, works busy and all that. So I try to, to be a little bit more consistent in my brewing. He likes going outside the box. Uh, he's got a grain father, which helps. So it's a little bit easier, whereas I have to lug my cooler out and all that. And he has been uh, one, one of the staples of pushing Kvike strains and working with them and trying to get more in-house and experiment with them. And his excitement bled to this Appalachian tart blend. And it's a blend of a Kvike and a lactic acid producing bacteria. They both thrive in those warmer temperatures. So 90 to 100, 105 Fahrenheit. And was able to mix those and then produce a sour beer that fermented out in two, three days, which is pretty awesome. What? Yeah. So that's yeah, it's great. And, you know, we've, we did a lot of trials to make sure that it was consistent and it produced a good tasting beer. <laughs> uh, and it did. And all of our trials showed a lot of promise. So we released that into the vault um, pretty recently. And I hope come summer when, you know, people can't really get their knockout temps as low as they want, you know, you can knock out pretty high instead of spending 45 minutes waiting for your work to chill, you know, chill it down to 90, 95 pitch this blend, let it ferment. And within a week, you could have a, an awesome tart, you know, kettle sour Berliner Weiss type beer. That's awesome. Yeah. In Southern California, it is always the biggest struggle to keep anything at fermentation temperature. I've got glycol running here and that is like my oh, wow. saving grace now. Yeah. I've got a little like stasis system by craft of brew. That's 
running the brewery now. I can't ferment anything without it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, groundwater is, you know, it's just, it, it can be in the 80s midsummer out here. So, yep, same up here and 120 degrees outside. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me, Eric. This was really enlightening. I'm super excited to get my hands on that strain. Um, I actually just tapped into a sour beer that is four years old now and it turned out real oh, awesome. nice, but it would have been even nicer if I could have brewed it and fermented it real hot. <laughs> uh, to follow what's happening at White Labs, you can check out them on Instagram at White Labs Yeast and you can follow Eric directly at Eric Beer and Barbecue, Eric spelled with a K, for some delicious looking rib and beer photos. Your ribs look to die for, and I can't wait to start barbecuing again. best friend and neighbor Jenny Mermelstein. She does reviews with me on the YouTube so check that out if you want to see more of us behaving badly. And today since we're doing the yeast episode we're going to try two beers localized to the region the breweries are in that yeast plays a significant part. I have Jester King's dry hopped oat saison. This one is fermented with uh, yeast that they actually harvested from the salvia plant in the Texas Hill Country. You keep speaking about the specificity of yeast, which is an ingredient I don't think I realized was so taste specific. So you're about to comment on your awareness of the region. Why does that regional awareness matter? Well, I mean, it's, it's basically part of the terroir of the region. So the yeast that you get from say Texas is going to be different from the yeast you get in California solely because like they're living organisms. So they adapt to their environment. So let's open it. It is a bright yellow. So vibrantly sunshine. Yeah. A little hazy. The nose is definitely very hop forward. I'm getting some like galaxy. There's a slight wild character to the nose. So when you said galaxy, is that because that's the super citrusy, a little bit pineapple, yeah. lemon, a grass? Little, a little bit of a cat urine. It is a little bit stanky. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, but it is, but it's still like bright and citrus. It's not like dank. It's not a heavy hop. It's a really bright. Okay, I haven't tasted it yet. That hop flavor or aroma carries through the flavor. Took the words out of my mouth. It still feels not wild like jungle green wild. It feels wild like grass, met not meadow, and not meadow wild. It's like straw, hey. farm. I mean, it is a little bit like stinky barn house, mm -hmm. but still but like think, fresh cut hay. I think the uh, like barnyardiness might be coming from the fact that it is a wild yeast. Whatever is creating the scent of barnyard in their farm is probably carrying over through the yeast. In a good way. And then the citrus, the citrus is not like a, a juicy citrus. It's like a, at the end of the day, lemon peel. Yeah, I was gonna say like a dried lime almost. And the beer is dry itself. It's not very sweet at all. This is not a beer I could drink 
easy all day. Like we've talked about that a lot of the time. It's like a beer you could drink all day. This is, I actually really like this, but it's a slow sipper for me. Mm -hmm. It's still light, it's still dry, but it's not, it doesn't quench my thirst, it makes me thirstier. So yeah, I think this is a really nice beer. It's very different from many wild beers I've had, given that it kind of reads more of like an IPA than say you would get from a farmhouse. Um, there's, it's definitely hop forward and it's really enjoyable. up is Degard's Dos Fail, also known as Dos Formerly an Interesting Lager. This one's a wild Mexican-style amber lager aged in oak barrels with their native yeast and bacteria. Uh, Dos Fail is from Tillamook, Oregon, so we're gonna get all the Tillamook cheese terroir in this one. But my question is, Mexican-style but local terroir, like how do you make something local to Oregon but also a Mexican-style? So a Mexican style lager would typically have flaked maize in it. So flaked corn that has the oils removed. And that's typically what gives Mexican lagers their flavor. With all the other ingredients. Grain or yeah. barley or what they use corn. That's what makes like Modelo or Corona or like all these other Mexican lagers. Mexican. I can't give you exact names of who does it, but. But the concept of a Mexican style, that makes so much sense. Right? Oh, I kind of like that. A lote beer. Yeah. Oh, they're also very clean drinking, not very sweet, you know. But to, to conceptually think of them adding corn to make the base and then letting the local cheesy, I'm curious about like- The cheesy yeast. I understand <laughs> that though, because to, to, I mean, cheese is also something that like ages and they use air to ferment. So you're not wrong. Like that is, have you tasted this one before? No. So then I think your curiosity is kind of in the same place. Mexican style, Amber. Mm -hmm. So by amber, notoriously, lager, amber, it's gonna have a more multi-forward look and feel, right? So like color-wise, perfectly stated. It's gonna have a little bit more color, a little bit more malt forward, so it's a little bit more toasty, a little bit more sugar forward, a little bit sweeter. Yeah. It, you know, it seems very um, under-carbonated, but I don't know, like I was trying to pour it heavy, um, but there's no, I mean, no I still, head. but it's a, it's my, it's very lightly hazy. Like it's, it's pretty clear. Like that's yeah. pretty clear. It's, I would call this, um, like toasty amber color. It's a, like a rust. It, it smells a little cherry sour, like mildly cherry mm -hmm. or apple. Is it a little, Stone um, fruit for sure. a little like apple cidery, but like very oh, light, yeah. very light. Wow. That does not feel like I thought it would. Ooh. Does not feel like a lager. Okay, so it's not clean because it's soured, but it's very light in body. But it's bright. It's very bright. I, I could drink this whole bottle. I'm not even joking. Totally agreed. So it's it's, it's hard. It, the adjective is hard because clean, if you had told me this was a sour, as a sour, I would have said it was clean. Yeah. But since it's not, it's a... It's a well, it's a yeah. soured lager. Does it say that? It's got, yeah, you can tell it is. But it didn't, we were, I wasn't expecting that. It says bacteria. Oh, okay. So I wasn't expecting, as a, as an amber Mexican style lager, I was expecting different, but. I was honestly expecting something maltier it's, and honestly not sour. I don't know why I thought I was, I was expecting something that tasted more oaks, honestly. I was not, I was not expecting sour at all. I was expecting a little bit malt 
a little bit sweet, I think, mm -hmm. from the whole like corn, malt, barrel, all those. I think I was expecting like the concept of like a uh, an aged lager or something like yeah. that. This is it's this is bright. Really nice. It's still really light. It's still dry. It's I like the sourness because it presents in the front, but then it fades very quickly. Oh yeah, super clean. Is that not, maybe that's not the right clean's not the right word. It doesn't like make your face hurt <laughs> like some sours do. It's annoying that. Yeah. That, I've used that word before today, but that when it makes your jaw hurt, yeah. I do exactly know. The sourness is only on your tongue. And it's it's not um sour patch kids sour. It's like it's fruit sour. This is not something that reading the description I think I would like, but and I am the description I pleasantly think I surprised. Yeah. This went opposite how I expected it to. I thought I was gonna like this more than you did. This is the first beer I've had of this brewery and I'm excited to get more. Really impressive how they manipulated the ingredients. This was a really good educational experience. Yeah, we can call this review a wrap. But we'll keep drinking it anyway. We will. <laughs> and if you want to hear Jenny and I reviewing this beer, you can get the full review on my Patreon and we will see you next week. Don't forget, Drink, Drink half, half the keg. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. is like sunshine for the belly. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsban on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one -on -one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.